We're looking at the parables, and last week I did the first half of probably what is one of the most famous parables of all, the prodigal son parable, though I would contend that it actually should be called the parable of the two lost sons, because it really is a parable with two sons who are both lost in different ways and yet in the same way. And we're going to talk about the older brother tonight. But let me just read the whole story. It's in Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, look at Luke chapter 15. And and it's important that you understand the context for why Jesus told this story. And you get that from Luke 15 verse 1 where it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The the religious leaders of Jesus' day were upset that he ate, shared table fellowship with notorious sinners. And they're grumbling about it. And so Jesus tells three stories in response to that. The first is a story about somebody who has 100 sheep and loses one of them. The second is a story about a woman who has 10 coins and loses one of them. And then the third story is also a story about things that are lost. And it's the story that we're going to look at tonight. So um, I think we'll read the whole story again and then focus on the second half. So look at verse 11 of of, uh, this passage. It's about a third of the way down if you have the printed paper. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And a lot of people end the story, at least as they remember it, there. But the story goes on. And in some ways, the main point of the story is coming up now. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has recovered him safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat 
so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I need to move this because my papers are going to blow away. Hold on one second. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for this story. We pray, Lord, that its familiarity would not mean that we don't hear what you have to say. We pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit and show us your love and show us our sin. Because we need to see both of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, we've got the... uh, what we're going to pick up tonight is this idea of the party. Because to really understand the, the parable, and particularly the second half of the parable, you have to understand what the party is all about. I think most people misunderstand this aspect of the parable. They think that the, the party is for the younger son. That's certainly what the older son says. See, it's interesting how often the things that the older son assumes... The older brother assumes there are things that he assumes that really probably aren't true, that have for centuries governed how people have understood this parable. One good example is um, there's no way that the older brother has any idea whether or not the younger brother spent his money on prostitutes. Yet he says that, but there's nothing in the story that would make you think he knew that that had happened. He just makes it up to slander his brother. And yet, a lot of the translations, like the NIV that I read from, have this word word wild living, which has a connotation, when it describes what he did in the far-off country, of being somebody who was squandering the money on prostitutes. But the word that's translated wild living doesn't have that connotation at all. That meaning kind of gets imported into it because people have just assumed that what the older brother says is true. Not necessarily. Um, What the older brother says about the party that you never gave me a, even a, a goat for my friends, but you gave the fatted calf for him, actually is not true. It's not true. The party is for the Father and for his glory. The reason I, I would say that is there's two reasons I would say that. For one, the three parables together in Luke 15 all work together to make a common point. In each one, of these parables, something is lost, and then it's found, and then there's a party. But the party is always for the one who has found the thing that's lost. The coin does not gather its friends around and have a party. The sheep do not have a barbecue out in the backyard. The party is for the the man who recovers the sheep. The party is for the woman who gathers her friends to celebrate with her that she's found the lost coin. And so it is with the third parable. The father has recovered his son who was lost. Now, I made that little adjustment when I was reading the passage because uh, the, the NIV translation is too passive at verse 27. 
When the older son hears the dancing and hears the music, he asks uh, a young servant boy, what's going on? And uh, when he hears about it, right, here's what the, the young boy says. And what the young boy says is what the people who are around understood to have happened. So it's very, it's very re uh, revealing what the young servant boy says is what the community thinks about what's happened. And what he says is, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But I think, you know, a better translation is he's recovered him. The, 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 the NIV translation makes it seem too passive, like he just has the boy back somehow. But as you know from, from the beginning of the story, the reason that he has the boy back as a son and not as a hired man is because of the father's demonstrations of sacrificial love. If you weren't here last week, this is what we talked about. And I have extra copies of the outline from last week on the back table. But in short, here's the point. The son, the prodigal son, planned to come back and work a deal with his dad and say, make me like one of your hired men so that I can earn off my debt. But when he sees the father hike up his skirts and run, something that was incredibly shameful in that culture, when he sees the father take that shame and draw it to himself, he falls to his knees, and instead of saying, make me like one of your hired men, he basically throws himself on the mercy of his father. And thus, the prodigal is recovered and restored as a son. No, not, not a, hired, a hired man like, like he wants to be. And so the party is for the father, who by the demonstration of costly love has been able to recover the son who is dead. He's not celebrating because this kid is back working on the farm again. The party is because my boy is home and we've been reconciled. Okay? All right. So that's what's going on with the party. The second thing you need to understand is that the older brother had specific responsibilities that would have been expected. He would have been expected when he heard there was a party. He would have been expected to go in, to say welcome to everybody, to join in with the party, excuse himself, and go change because he's been working in the fields. But he was expected to make an appearance first. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He refuses to go in. Now, to refuse to go in is a huge deal. It's a public humiliation of his father. It's a public insult. Kenneth Bailey, who's kind of one of the world's experts on the parables, says that if you understand the Middle Eastern context, you will understand that what the older son does is worse than what the young son does. It's worse. Not only that, but you have the father leaving the party and coming outside to plead with his son. What Bailey says, and whenever he, he tells this story to Middle Eastern peasants, which is kind of one of the things he likes to do, they, they would have expected in this day and age for the father to call servants to take his son, to throw him in a, in a room and lock the door and then beat him after the party was over for this kind of insult. That's what would have been expected. Never in a million years would you expect that the father, while being publicly insulted 
in a culture that cares very, very much about saving face and about shame. Never would you have expected that the father would come out and plead with the son. Because do you know what? As soon as the father leaves the party, what do you think is going to happen? The music stops. The people are going to listen in on what's going on. And, and, to, and to hear the father pleading with this son, this rebellious son, who makes all kinds of wild accusations about his father, is unbelievable. I mean, look, look, at, this, look at this son. Look at what he's like, right? I, I mean, his heart attitude is wretched. You see it in the way he talks. Look in verse 28. It says, the older brother became angry. And in his anger, he reveals himself. We often do this, you know. It's always funny when sometimes when people think that they're angry. Well, that's not really me, you know. But in actuality, it probably is more you than the times you're able to keep your anger in check. Because your anger is always connected to the things that you worship and your ultimate thing that you live for. And if it gets threatened or blocked, look out. Anger comes. And so it is with this boy. He becomes angry and he refuses to go in to the party. And again, the party is for his father. So what is he doing? He is seeking to stop what has been happening. He's seeking to stop the reconciliation. He's seeking to rob glory from his father. He's basically saying, Father, I don't care. You don't deserve a party. The father says, I deserve a party. Look at what I did. I saved this son of mine. I brought him back. And the older son says, Father, you don't deserve a party, and I'm not going to come in at all. How do you recognize the older brother? Let's look some more at this older brother. It's funny. You know, there's a place... Um, in the Bible, it's in Isaiah chapter 44, when it talks about people who worship idols, which are basically anybody that trusts something that's not God. We do this all the time. We put our trust in things. Um, sometimes they're abstract kinds of things, like you might put your trust in your beauty or uh, your fame or your talent. Uh, or you might put it in something much more tangible, like a certain person, that if this person recognizes me and loves me, then everything is, then life's worth living, right? The Bible calls this idolatry and um, says it's the root of all of our hearts. But in Isaiah 44, which is kind of the longest chapter in the Bible on idolatry, there's a great verse where it says that the one who's worshiping an idol can't even say that the thing in my right hand is a lie. In other words, when you're holding onto an idol and you're worshiping it, it creates, Tim Keller calls, delusional fields. Not only is, is, are the idols lies, and the Bible often says the idols are lies, and they also lie to us, and they create other lies, and, and we just don't even know which way is up anymore. This, I, I love this. You see this in this guy here. Um, in verse 29, look at this. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Never disobeyed your orders, really. You're publicly insulting your father. You know, one of the big ten was honor your father and mother. In the very act in which he claims he's not breaking any of his commandments, he's doing one of the, you know, he's breaking one of the big ten. 
publicly insulting his dad. But he's so clueless. He thinks that he's obeying the orders even while he admits that his attitude was completely wrong. He says, I've been slaving for you. And that's very revealing, isn't it? He hasn't been obeying the Father because he loved him. He's been slaving for him. It's drudgery. There's no love for for the Father. And see, this is why, in a lot of ways, he's no different than the younger son. The, The younger son, as well, wants to come back like a servant. And the Father refuses and says, No, you're my son. The only relationship we can have is as a son. You can never be my employee. And I talked last week about how so often Christians feel more like employees than they do sons and daughters of the living God. And that's, that's this guy. See, the older brother represents the people who have stuck around. They didn't run off and, and you know, sort of blow the money and the inheritance, but they stayed home. They did the right things. They went to youth group every week, and yet their heart is growing increasingly bitter and distant from their father. And and you see this, you know, when the father says at the very end, my son, in verse 31, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You are always with me, but that doesn't matter to this kid. I don't want to be with you. See, you, you realize that doesn't matter to him, being with the father. He wants stuff. He wants to use the father as a means to an end. He doesn't really want relationship with his father. He wants what his father can give him. And that's always the mark of an older brother. And it's a mark that I find in my heart and you'll probably find in your heart too. When we want to use God to get something else, but there's something else that we think is better and more necessary and more vital for life than God is. And that's what this, that's what this son does as well. He's living like a slave rather than a son. He's self-absorbed, right? He's self-absorbed. He doesn't even know what's going on. He feels that his father owes him. Here he is insulting his father, but he feels that his father has ripped him off. And he accuses his father. And again, you know, publicly insulting his father by refusing to go in is one thing. But then he accuses his father of playing favorites. Says, you gave the fatted calf to that boy but you never gave me anything. You're not fair. That's what he's saying to his father. You're not just, you're not fair. And again, by this point, everybody's listening in on the conversation. The father cannot leave a party that's in his honor and walk outside and get into a discussion with his son without everybody knowing what's going on. Okay? Um, What else do we see about him? Well, he doesn't really care about his brother either. It's interesting when you look in, um, in verse 27, the servant even emphasizes, your brother has come. Don't you remember? Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But the older brother doesn't see it this way and doesn't want to even say that. Look in verse 30. He can't even call the prodigal his brother. He says, when this, this is what he says to his dad, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You killed the fattened calf for him. And again, listen to the way he addresses his father. There are no, there are no uh, words of respect. Dear father, 
I'm a little annoyed about this, right? There's no, nothing respectful in his tone as a boy in this culture would have been expected to talk. You don't tr- talk to your father or to your elders this way. And you certainly don't accuse them like this. But what does his father do? How does his father respond? My son. My son. Even when his, his own son doesn't want to admit the relationship or own up to it, doesn't want it, but still the father won't let him get away with that. Um, the, the kid wants to have a party, but look who he wants to have a party with, his friends. In other words, you say, I don't need this family. I want my own community that I get to pick, and I want to be able to celebrate, and I want to be able to use the estate how I want it. Do you see, you understand that the younger son had said, divide the estate among us, okay? Now, at that point, the older son should have stepped in and said, no, we can't do that, but he didn't. He let it go. The, old, the younger son goes and wastes some money. Now he's back, which means everything that's still there is the, young, is the uh, older brother's stuff, though he's not allowed to take it until his father dies. So when he tells the father, I don't like how you're distributing the estate, especially the fattened calves. What he's saying is, I demand that you use this estate and this property according to the way I think it should be used. I want to tell you how to use this because it's mine. And what he's saying No less than what the younger son said. When he said, Dad, give me my inheritance, what everybody in that culture knew he was saying is, Dad, drop dead. I don't want to have anything to do with you. The older son's saying the same thing. When he's complaining and saying, give me a fattened calf, he's saying, let me have my inheritance now to spend it how I want with my friends. Even though he thinks he's completely different than the prodigal, he wants the same thing. He wants the same thing. He wants to be able to do with the stuff whatever he wants to do with it, right? He just doesn't appreciate what he has. Verse 31, this is often the case, of course, with people that have grown up in church and um, maybe been around Christian stuff, and they often, they often lose sight of how glorious it is to have a relationship with God or to be brought up in that understanding and, and I think, you know, for me, this is always a powerful, powerful verse. Verse 31, my, fa- my son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. I, I think it's a way of him saying, don't be afraid. You have, you have everything you need, and you have me. And I think God still says that to, uh, to all those older brothers. But he doesn't appreciate what he had, Right? Rather than being grateful, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's just worried that his younger brother is going to experience grace, and he can't stand that. And see, I think this is often the case. Christians who think that they've earned the blessings that they have are some of the most miserable, insecure people that you'll ever meet. They also tend to backbite and to criticize and gossip. Do you know why? Because they know that if they have blessings from God that they, because they earned it, well, they know that that's a very insecure position to be in. Because if they think that's the reason they're being blessed, then they're always worried that they're going to screw up and everything's going to come tumbling down, right? Their righteousness, their 
sort of, um, uh, what would, how would I put it? Their leverage or their power over God to get him to do what they want is like a house of cards. Their righteousness, their obedience. And therefore, they're always worried about any little wind that comes in, right? They got this house of cards they've built. And, and you know, it's working and God's impressed. But man, there's a whole lot of things that can come in and, and bring it crashing down. So they're incredibly insecure. Anybody gets near it, they have to, you know, you know, reach out and swat at them, right? That's what it is. This is why in the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, Paul says about people who have forgotten that God relates to them by grace, and they've begun to think that the way that you keep God loving you is by doing all kinds of good things. When they begin to believe that false idea, Paul says, what they saw among their relationships was described as biting and devouring one another. And that's what this kid's doing, too, biting and devouring. He's incredibly insecure. He's angry. He's furious. He just doesn't even think about what he's saying to his father. It's absolutely, you know, humiliating, insulting. But all he can think about is himself, right? And here, to top it all off, while he's saying to his father, which is kind of the the message under all of his things, what he's saying is, you don't really love me. While he's saying that, what is his father doing? Pleading with him, speaking gently to him, once again, demonstrating sacrificial, costly love. Once again, just like with the younger son, the father is taking the humiliation and he's not paying the older son back what he deserves. But here's the difference between the younger son and the older son. The first half of this parable basically has eight stanzas. And and, and there's a very interesting structure, the way sort of things close off and resolve. The second half of the parable has seven. What's missing from this story? What do we have in the, the first half that we don't have in the second half? The restoration. We don't know if the older brother responded to the father's sacrificial love. We know that the younger son responded to the sacrificial love. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, look, the sinners and the tax collectors are responding to this sacrificial love. But what about you? What about you? You older brothers that are condemning me. What about you? Will you respond? This is amazing. Jesus doesn't just say, you guys are bad guys and I'm done with you. No, he tells this story inviting them to consider whether they want to have a relationship with the Father, whether they think it valuable to be with him, whether they want to live and celebrate his glory and make much of the fact that he has went to incredible lengths to recover lost sons and daughters. Do they want to celebrate that, or do they want to sit on the sidelines and complain? The invitation is open, even to Pharisees, even to older brothers. And the same basis upon which older brothers can celebrate is the same basis that prodigals can celebrate, because of the sacrificial love of God. That's what this story is about. But there's a little bit more I want you to see. The amazing love of the Father 
is, is, a, is a powerful thing to see here, right? But there's, there's a way to see Jesus in this parable as well. And uh, actually a couple ways. I, I think certainly the idea of the Father offering sacrificial love that costs him. I don't know if you, you know, when you think about the cross, if you think about the pain or if you ever think about the humiliation that Jesus endured. Because that was part of what was going on. The idea that God would take on human flesh and suffer humiliation and scorn and ridicule is, is an important theme if you want to understand what Jesus was about and what the cross was about. And so, like the Father, Jesus is the one and the way that God demonstrates costly sacrificial love. Not only that, there's, there's a level in which he's like the prodigal. Because you know what Deuteronomy says about rebellious sons? What should happen to rebellious sons? It's there in Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says that rebellious sons should be stoned. Rebellious sons should not be given half of the estate and let go to squander it. When the, when the younger son asked for that, he should have been thrown in jail and they should have been stoned. That's what Deuteronomy says. So the father definitely is demonstrating patience in letting him go. But not only that, Jesus eventually becomes like the prodigal. Even though, here's the amazing thing, I, I would believe that Jesus is the true older brother in this parable. Look again at the three parables. Think about the three parables. In every one of them, there's something that's lost, and there's someone who seeks, who gets up and goes after what was lost. And that's the point of those first two parables. But in this third parable, and again, the way, the way it starts in verse 11, Jesus continued. The, 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 the Luke wants you to know that these three are linked. And if you would understand any of them, you have to understand all three of them together. What's, what goes on in this parable is there is no seeker after the prodigal. And this is why Kenneth Bailey says, you know, there's Jewish writings to, to tell us that it was expected that the older brother would have went after the younger brother that he would have pursued him into the far country and rescued him. And so when this story happens, the third story, there's no seeker. What, what's going on? Jesus is the true older brother. Jesus is the one who's conspicuous by his absence in this third story. Jesus is the one who doesn't just go to the far country, but he switches places with the prodigal so that the prodigal could be welcomed home. Jesus is the true older brother who doesn't just give up a fatted calf out of his estate. He gives up everything he has so that prodigals who've squandered everything they had could come back home. Don't you want a brother like that? Don't you need a brother like that? Who will pay everything you need? That's what Jesus is about. This is, this is what he's saying. Look at me. Don't look at me and complain because I'm recovering sinners and tax collectors. Come eat with us. You need to eat with us too. You're no different than them. Oh, you may have a different way that you avoid me. Maybe you think you can keep the rules and therefore you don't need me, really? You know, one of the most powerful things 
that I came to understand after being a Christian for a while was that the main, the main stuff that keeps people raised in the church from coming to Jesus is, is, is good stuff. The stuff that they have that is, that is good. In other words, what is keeping the older brother from his father's heart? All the hard work that he's doing? All of the benefits of living in the house? Right? Those are the things that are keeping him from the father's heart. Um, this is why the Bible says things like, your, your righteousness are like filthy rags. Now, in Isaiah, you know, that's an English translation that's a very sanitized illustration because really the way the Hebrew speaks there, the word for filthy rag is the word for a used menstrual cloth. And if you know anything about the Old Testament law and um, blood, it's more than just gross. It's about, you know, the, the most defiling kind of picture. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very graphic picture. But notice what, you know, Isaiah doesn't say that's what's true of all the bad things you do. No, he says that's your righteous deeds, the good stuff that you do. The good stuff that you do is what keeps you from collapsing on Jesus. Flannery O'Connor, the great uh, Catholic Southern writer, said that people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. They like to pretend that they're not really sinners so that they won't really need Jesus. Oh, they want to make sure that they walked an aisle some point in the future so they've got that base covered. But they don't really think of themselves as sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And, and it's because they think about all the, the good things they've done. They compare themselves to other people and say, well, I haven't killed anybody, right? So I don't really need, you know, all grace. I just need a little help, right? God knows that I mean well. I try hard. I don't really be, you know, I, I don't really, I haven't hurt anybody really. You know, of course, of course, none of that's really true. But even if it was, it wouldn't matter. What you need is a righteousness that you can't possibly produce and manufacture. Because Jesus said what you need to be reconciled to the Father and for him to smile at you is for you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not just one day out of a hundred, but every day. So, you see, if you think that you're doing pretty good and you don't need grace and mercy, well then, see, your righteousness... Your good deeds, quote-unquote good deeds, are keeping you from Jesus. And that's the heart of the older brother, is his good stuff, which isn't really good because he's not doing it for his father. He's doing it for himself. Do you see that? He's, he's basically saying, I've been slaving for you, father, but he's not really slaving for his father. He's slaving so that he can make his father do what he wants. He's trying to earn his father's approval. So he's really doing it for himself. That's what older brothers are like. Um, I want to close with, um, with, with a quote that I think is just amazing in this regard by George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield lived back in the 1700s, preached all up and down the East Coast, preached over in England and Scotland. A tremendous revival broke out in his day. A lot of people have heard of Jonathan Edwards. 
um, George Whitfield was his friend and um, was, was just kind of the man, humanly speaking, most used by God for one of the greatest revivals ever. But if you want to understand what was it, what was this radical message that just shook people up and, and had them crying out for mercy, what was the message that just was changing lives up and down the East Coast? It was remarkable if you ever read stories of this revival. What was the message? This is kind of the heart of it. But this one from one of his sermons. Jesus, or George Whitfield says this, Before you can have peace in your hearts, you must not only be sick of your sins, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol that is taken out of your heart. The pride of our heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you have never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you can never come to Jesus. There are a great many now that will say, well, we believe all this, but there's a great difference between talking and feeling. Did you ever feel the want or the lack of a dear Redeemer? Did you ever feel the deficiency of your own righteousness? And can you now say from the heart, Lord, thou must justly damn me for the best duties that I ever did perform. If you are not thus brought out of self, you may speak peace to yourselves, but yet there is no peace. And uh, one of my favorite stories was this guy, um, David Dixon, lived back in the 1600s. Uh, He was a Scottish Puritan, one of the Covenanters, they called him. And on his deathbed, he was asked, David, how is it with your soul? And I love his answer. He says, I've taken my bad deeds and my good deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I've fled from both of them to Jesus, and in him I have peace. Until we flee both from our good deeds and our bad deeds, we can never have peace. But that's the invitation. That's the invitation to flee your bad deeds and even to flee your righteousness and trust in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the invitation that this parable gives us. And we pray, Lord, that we would respond. Where else would we go? Who else has such an invitation for those who have sinned against the holy heavenly God of the universe? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for for what you did to open a way, and we pray that you would draw us to trust in you. Give us that, that sweet trust, that faith in you that brings glory to your name and glory to your Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.